And we're beginning a series of messages today about sex. Now, in our society, there are two primary attitudes towards sex. One comes out of a philosophy called realism, and one comes from a philosophy called romanticism. I'm not talking about romantic in the sense of being romantic. We're talking about two philosophies that are deep at the heart of our society. The realist says sex is natural. People have sex because it's an inevitable biological drop. Adults have sex, teenagers have sex. And what we need in our society is to strip sex of all the taboos that society puts around this natural thing. Sex is a human drive, and suppressing the sex drive is repressing. So, for example, the way this philosophy works out in our public school system is that you often encounter this idea that sex education needs to do two things. Demystify sex, strip it of its societal taboos, and number two, educate people so that they can have safe sex. Now, this is a realist position. The, the, the way that we need to handle sex is to strip it of its taboos and practice it in such a way that we avoid negative consequences, be responsible, be protection. Now, this is not just a logical position. This is a position that we arrive at at a deep philosophical pre-commitment. The other prominent approach to sex in our society comes out of a movement in Germany several centuries ago called Romanticism. Now, the Romantic view in this sense of sex doesn't approach sex so much from a biological perspective as it approaches sex from a psychological or relational perspective. For example, the idea that love is the condition for sex comes out of Romanticism. This idea that so long as two people love each other, sex is okay. Another way that romanticism is predominant in our culture is when it says that, the, that your sexuality is critical to your self-expression. So through your sex life, you are fulfilled. Sex is a fundamental way to be yourself, and to deny someone their sexual proclivities is to strike at the core of their being. Now that is a predominant view in our culture that says people need to be released to be who they are. And who they are, sexual fulfillment in our culture, is tantamount to self-expression and self-fulfillment. Sex is a fundamental way to be yourself and to find yourself. Now the Bible challenges both of these views. Now, let me just say up front, I'm sure there are people here who do not see the Bible as God's authoritative revelation. Maybe you don't trust the Bible on the subject of sex, love, and maybe you see the Bible as progressive. If that's the case, I want to urge you to reconsider. I know that there are some Christians who talk as if sex is negative. If the body is as if the body is something to be ashamed of. 
is that pleasure is something that is less than spiritual. Well, simply put, they're wrong. It's not what the Bible says. And it's not what Christianity in its tradition has typically said. Yes, there are moments you can pick and choose out of Christianity where the church has got disease on this, but it has not been the majority position for the majority of time. Now this morning I'm going to walk through three important, helpful, challenging, life-giving teachings out of the Bible with regard to sex. There's a lot more to say about it. We're going to take six weeks. This morning, we're going to start with three. But first, in the Bible, we see that sex in marriage is good. It is a very good thing. It is not dirty. It is not demeaning. In fact, Christianity might be the most sex-positive religion in the world. Now, our reading from Genesis, Jacob, Hanson, Cook, read to us. God created humans with bodies. Do you know what that means? That means God invented all of those nerves that are in particular places. That didn't sneak in there. God didn't wake up one day and scratch his head and say, oh no, we've got a problem here. That was a part of the original package. And it says in that, in that initial passage on sex, it says that they were to hold fast and become one flesh. Shakespeare's language, the strange, humpback creature of the night. Is <laughs> This is, look, that cat, they will hold fast and become one flesh. There is certainly more than one honor in sex, but it is at the very least a very graphic description of sexual intercourse. That's not all the Bible. The Bible not only says that sex is a part of the creation, it's not only good, but in the Bible, God strongly commends sex to human beings. If you've got your Bible, look at Proverbs chapter 5. You know, you might want to write this down. It's an opportune point. Proverbs chapter 5, starting in verse 15. Drink water from your own system. Flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, the streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the light of your youth. Lovely, dear, and graceful death. Her breasts fill you at all times with delight, being intoxicated always in her love. Now this is a place in the Bible where God is commending sexual pleasure not for any other reason than for pleasure. He's not saying because it makes children. He's not saying that it does this or that. He's saying Give yourself to the right pleasure in marriage. Then there's a Song of Solomon. Turn a few pages to the right. Find Song of Solomon, chapter 7. I have to be careful here. 
try to find more than I can read without watching. Romans <laughs> Solomon chapter 7. This is a book in the Bible that is filled with great love poetry celebrating erotic sexual passion and pleasure between a husband and wife. Listen to this one of the poems, Proverbs, uh, Psalm, Psalm of Psalms, chapter 7, verse 1. How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble God. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat and circled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns cleansed with yourselves. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools of heshen, by the gate of death for me. Your nose is like a tower in Lebanon. No, I don't think that is exactly <laughs> But apparently back in the day, this was quite the lie. <laughs> Your nose is like a tower. Your head crowns you like marble, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in their, in their dresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, a loved one, with all your delight. Your stature is like a palm tree, your breasts are like a plum. I say I will find a palm tree and lay hold of the fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples in your mouth, like the best plum. This is a long way from old fashioned. This is hard or repressive. In fact, I didn't have the guts to read. The last bit of chapter 5, don't read it now. This is why, this is why my English literature teacher in high school says the school will not allow us to let you read um, Chaucer's Canterbury Tale for Miller's Death. So we're going to read the other. So all of us went on that night. We're going to Miller's Death. So um, do like a high school boy and don't read this at night. Okay? That's not right. But at the end of chapter 5, what we see is what we see throughout the whole book is that we see the woman. Not the man. It's a dominant force. And that's even more astonishing considering how long ago this was written and the, and the nature of its patriarchal culture. It's the woman who seeks and pursues and initiates and so on and so on. In poem after poem, we find the two lovers not shy, not ashamed. There's no mechanical movement under the sheet. Over and over again, the two stand before one another, aroused, feeling no shame, only joy in their sexuality. The Bible is a very uncomfortable book for the prudish. It leaves no room for doubt on God's view of sex within marriage. Now, in light of this teaching of the rightness and the goodness of sex, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the passage that Jacob read to us. Paul offers a very important insight. Turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. By the way, he picks up on this theme of, the, of, of women's liberation, and he says the man's body belongs to the woman, which in that day was absolutely revolutionary. Those who read Paul as a sexist are really reading with an agenda. But what I want you to see is verse 5. He's talking to husbands and the wives about their sex life, and he says, Do not deprive one another, 
except throughout my agreement for a limited time that you may, if you write in your Bible, or if you can do this with your fancy technological devices, undermine this next word, devote. That you may devote yourself to prayer, again, come, but then come together again. Now think about this. If stopping sex means I can devote more time and energy and attention to prayer, then the implication is that when I start having sex again, I need to devote time and energy and attention to that. Christians in our society tend to focus on the epidemic of sexual activity outside of marriage. And what I'm trying to say is that we need to focus on another epidemic, sexual inactivity within it. Sex is a beautiful gift from God. We were made for sex. God wants married couples to find sex and right and fulfilling and free and beautiful. Like I said, that's the reason he put a bunch of particular nerves in a few particular places. It's God's intention that married couples embrace and pursue bodily pleasure and the unique ecstasy of sex. What this means is that those who are married need to beware of lifestyle choices that hamper our intimate relationship with our spouse. We need to attend to the lifestyle choices that can make our sex life flourish and the ones that can make it die. Now some of these factors are outside of our control, illness, grief, psychological turmoil, but many are within our For them, deliberately overworking. The list could go on and on to things that are within our control that have a deleterious impact on our sex life. There are times when lovemaking is a shared life, there are times when it is impossible, and some of those times are in our control. Now, over the course of a marriage, many couples have sexual problems. And if this is you, don't be discouraged. Welcome to the universe. If you were a psychologist or a pastor or a doctor, you would know how ubiquitous sexual difficulties are among mature people. The media portrays this absurd myth that sexual paradise is easily attained. It is not. The book that I use in premarital counseling um, on the issue of the sexual relationship between a couple is called sheet music. And the whole metaphor driving the book is the idea that getting good at sex is like getting good at playing music. It takes practice, which is good news, right? Practice. Lots of practice. Repetitive practice. Again, yes, again. 
good sex takes time. And you may need to ask for help. You might need to find a discreet, older Christian couple. And by the way, I always tell young couples with premarital counseling, you have to have a discussion. And you have to decide who the wife can talk to in confidence. You have to decide who the husband can talk to in confidence. And who the husband talks to needs to be a man that the wife is comfortable with. And who the wife talks to needs to be a woman that the husband is comfortable with. And you both have to be you might need to see a counselor. You might need to see a doctor. But what is important is to work lovingly, gently, and patiently at intimacy. Make space for it in your marriage. Nurture it. Do everything within your power to keep the sexual relationship flourishing. Find the unique rhythms in life that you and your spouse need so that sexual delight can occur. It's a beautiful gift. But that's not all there is to sex. In fact, it would be a distortion of the truth to stop here, to conceive of sex as only for pleasure in the life. It's not. There's more. In the Bible, the point of sex is not merely to enjoy one another. Sex is also for the purpose of having children. Now, I'm not going to take time to deal with that because it's very complicated. And in, in November, I'm going to have a whole sermon dealing with why sex in marriage is for the purpose of having children. Try to deal with all these exceptions and all of that. But there's something in it. A reason for sex beyond pleasure is that when a couple delights in one another, out of that delight can flow love for others. The passage of scripture on the front of the worship house. Isaiah 62. It comes right at the end, I think it's verse 5 there. But listen to the whole paragraph. Isaiah 62, starting in verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not be silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. Until her righteousness goes forth in brightness and the salvation of the burning pool. The nation shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name. The mouth of the Lord will give shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be desolate. But you shall be called my delight is in her. That's why I love the Philip Hanks. And your land in her. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoice over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. What we need to see is that here God loves Israel. Like a husband loves a wife. God is the husband. Israel is the bride. And although his marriage to Israel is troubled and broken, and Israel has betrayed the marriage over, over, and over, God still loves his bride passionately. And this passionate love, this is what you need to see, has an outward focus. Notice where verse 1 begins. 
For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. Until her righteousness goes forth. And our salvation is a burning torch. The idea is that it's, it's not just internal, it flows out. This passionate love, this picture of marriage that flows beyond the borders of its own family. Over and over, the Bible makes this claim about marriage and sex, and it is a deep insight that we need to hold. Human marriage must be an echo of the relationship that God has with his people. So this means that the passionate, intimate relationship that God had with Israel was all of all for the sake of the world. This means that the passionate, implied, intimate relationship that a husband and a wife have should overflow the boundaries of the bedroom in blessings to others. The sexual intimacy and delight that lies at the heart of a loving marriage may nurture a warmth and a gentleness and kindness that overflows from that stable, exclusive relationship out into a loving, generous hospitality to others. A deeply broken sex life between a husband and wife will distort that couple's ability to establish a generous, hospitable relationship and hope. In the Bible, God's intimate relationship with Israel was directly related to his outward focus to the world. Time and time again, in the Bible, the intimate, passionate, exclusive love affair between God and Israel is the template through which we are to understand the nature of sex. This powerful, erotic, sexual love between a husband and wife can provide the center of stable security so that a home will become a refuge for others who are welcome. Your private intimacy can be at the heart of a relationship which overflows in love to others. Your faithful love is the center of your ability to serve God and His purposes. Faithful love cannot flow out of a marriage unless it is present at the heart of the marriage. Gentle love cannot flow out of a marriage unless it's present at the heart of the marriage. Now maybe for a moment you be faithful. Maybe for a season, maybe for a while, but be sure you cannot carry that on forever. A good tree bears good true fruit, and so the usefulness of a marriage in bringing God and his kingdom to this world and bringing blessings to others depends on its inner, secret, warm, intimate love. This has nothing to do with sexual technique. The couple who love one another with a passionate this couple will generate in their marriage the overflow of a love that nourishes their children and their neighbors, and their workplace, and the lost people that they are longing to introduce 
to their creator. Well, that's a second important life-giving teaching from the Bible that I feel like is beyond my ability to even scratch the surface. The first one sets is good. The second one sets is for others. It's not just for the two of you. I've got to warn you, for some of us, what I'm about to say is going to be the most difficult. Even more difficult than the assumption I've been making that sex is only for marriage. And let me say, the biblical teaching on this is simple. Inside of marriage, faithful sexuality. Outside of marriage, total absence. The Bible never bats an eye on it. It understands the challenges. That's its only message. Sex in marriage between a man and a wife, and outside of that, it's outside of God's plan. Now, I realize that I need to engage in a whole lot of discussion about minds that way, and how that actually makes sense, and how that actually does honor and dignity to us. I'm not going to do that at this point, but in the next six weeks, some of that will come out. I know that's hard for some of us. And I know it's hard for some of us who are struggling with brokenness in our sexuality to hear that we've got to work on because the kingdom of God depends on it. I know that's hard for some. But what I'm about to say might be the biggest challenge of all. Sex is good. Sex is correct. Number three, your sex life is my concern. My sex life is your business. Your sex life is a public issue. It's funny, isn't it? Everywhere you turn, people talk about sex. Moms go talk shows and confess to sleeping with their daughter's boyfriend. Abercrombie and Fitch can build a whole line of fashion around blatant, public, immodest, unethical display of sexuality. And yet, the iron wall of our age one of the deepest intuitions of our culture is that your body is your business. My body is my business. And I can choose to do with my body what I want to do on the single condition that it harms no one. And I can talk all I want about my sex life, but you have no authority over my sex life. That's an irony at the heart of our culture. What I do with my body is my business. It's none of your business. I can do it in front of you, but you can't say anything about it. <laughs> I can handle this issue in one of two ways. Clearly, there is a need to show why society depends on regular sex. That's a critical need that must be done in our culture. I can point out that the prevailing view of what I do with my own business along with everybody, that it feels like it's broad-minded, but actually it's quite dogmatic. And they show how sex, like any other necessary crushes and volatile power that is commonly held, is everybody's business. But I can't do that this morning. I don't have time. And I think there's actually something more important. For most of us, not all of them. Now, if you want to talk about that issue, why is sex public? Why does it matter? If you want to talk about that, please call me, email me, text me, my number. My email, all that's on the back of the worship guide. We'll have lunch, we'll have coffee. We'll come up and talk with you about it. I wanted to deal with it, I can't this morning. Because it's, it's, it's another aspect of the public nature of sex that I think is most important 
for the church of the incarnation. Scripture categorically rejects the idea that what I do in the privacy of my bedroom with another adult is my duty. Categorically rejects that idea. Remember the passage in 1 Corinthians, Paul is getting involved. He's talking to people and telling them when they can have sex and when they can't have sex. And you understand that the underlying assumption there is that it is his business. And it's not just Paul. This is throughout the Bible. That stuff in Proverbs, it is the business of one another that our sex lives flourish in marriage. It is our business. Look with me in Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Well, look, in chapter 5, Paul has just dealt with a whole host of virtues and vices, including sexual behavior. And then he gets to chapter 6, verse 20, and it says, Brothers, if anyone is called in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, and you too be tempted. They are one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. I don't have time to go into it, but it would be wrong to interpret this passage as saying only mature Christians should hold each other accountable. It appears on the surface it's saying that, but that's not what it's saying. Again, one of those things, if you want to talk about it, you can't talk about it. Online. But what we see here is what we see throughout the Bible. We must be willing to initiate hard conversations with our brothers and sisters about their sex life. Some of you have Christian freedom, or perhaps yourself. You spend a lot of nighttime hours together or in your house or in an apartment alone with your boyfriend girlfriend, and too often, no one ever poses a firm but loving invite, a gentle rebuke, or even the very least, the oblique offer of fear. We've been so conditioned by our culture of individualism and autonomy that we are uncomfortable in raising the tough issues of sex and virginity and abstinence and faithfulness. We don't want to intrude. We don't want to see the nose. The Bible tells us to intrude. Actually, it doesn't. The Bible says getting involved is not an intrusion. Talking to one another about what is really going on in our lives is not an intrusion. It's a right and an obligation. You see, when I was baptized, I became your brother. And in that moment, my sex life is your business. When you were baptized, you became my sister. And in that moment, your sexual proclivities are a concern to this church. My joys 
for your choice. My crisis is your crisis. We are called to speak to one another with firmness and love. For those of you who don't need essentials, I say every time our church practices church discipline. But 95% of church discipline has to be at the level of frank, honest, firm, gentle conversation among friends. If it's not there, then by the time it gets up to an institutional level, we will have a problem. It would be like me trying to discipline my kid. <laughs> Spending no other time. What would I just The first step in creating a culture of sexual purity must be not in talking to one another about our sex life. It must be built on a relationship that has a hundred experiences available out there. And having lunch together. And mountain biking together. And me feeding you in seconds of guitar together. <laughs> and someone from the Cook family thinking they can actually meet someone from the Spears family. <laughs> we have to tolerate these silly ideas. No. <laughs> no, it has to be built on me helping you out with a thousand mundane domestic barriers we all face to be in this world. It has to be built on small groups and friendship and what Christian community doesn't simply come about through hard conversations. No, having hard, intimate conversations is what is possible when people have already opened up the day-to-day mundane affairs of their lives with one another. The Bible teaches we not only have a right, we have an obligation to get there. To speak to each other in gentleness and love and firmness and transparency and honor about our sexual sins. And it's not just our sexual sins, it's also about all the complicated and physical and emotional thickets that we find ourselves in just by being sexual beings. We need to speak frankly to one another about the realities of dating. This isn't just college students. This is people in their 30s who are dating and 40s who are dating. And I hope that no one dating in our congregation never gets love enough to be asked about these issues. I hope that none of our husbands and wives are never failed by not having the friendship that we enter into all the pain and walk with one another. Look, sex is a good gift, and like many good things, it can be misused and it can be abused. And the misuse of it and the abuse of it forge you. And some of you have been misformed by bad experiences. I understand that. This room is filled with people who are just like people that build Bible. And if you read the people in the Bible, their lives are filled with sexual sin. Sexual sin is serious, but it is forgivable. <coughs> our God is a God who washes away our filth. He washes away our guilt. The gospel is not just for the sexually pure. The gospel, in fact, doesn't have much to offer the sexually pure. The gospel is for the sexually broken and struggling and fallen. 
God himself took on a body. He took on flesh and he died on the cross for all of our sin. The cause of it, no human being may ever say, it is too late. My life is too spoiled by sin. I love C.S. Lewis here for Shitty when he gets to the end of this chapter on sex and he says, oh, and by the way, those who think it's the worst sin, sexual morality, actually it's not nearly as bad as those other sins, like lying, pride. Becoming a Christian is about one very basic true thing. That Jesus is God himself. And he died to save you from your sin. However, conversion, while it makes a new Christian, it never makes a mature Christian. Becoming a Christian changes things, but it doesn't make you mature. Becoming a Christian affects a change in your heart. It gives you a new spiritual energy, a new moral muscle. But it doesn't make you. Becoming a Christian does not affect an instantaneous change in your habits, in the formation that has occurred in your life up until now. So becoming a Christian is about one very basic thing. Jesus is God, and he died to save you for your sin, and only by confessing and repenting and coming into faith, you have any chance of salvation from the hell that you will create. And who will be your punishment? But after that, there are many things to learn. And it is very complicated. And it is very difficult. You've got to learn how to pray, how to interact with your family, how to spend your money, how to use your time, how to your body, how to understand your work. And learning these things is not just a matter of knowledge, it's a matter of developing new habits. And after a long time, those habits shape your character. And after a long time, that character shapes your heart and what you actually desire. The Christian view of sex is very simple. God created sex for marriage, and sex outside of marriage is always, always a sin. No excuses, no exceptions. I'm not talking about if you were raped, if you committed sin. Look, the Christian teaching about sex is simple, but can be very difficult. And over the next few weeks, I'm going to try to deal with some of these difficult challenges as we, that we face as we seek to bring our sexuality into a healthy rhythm in line with the greater universe, in line with God's will. I'm going to talk about singleness. I'm going to talk about adultery. We're going to talk about homosexual desires. We're going to talk about heterosexual desires. I'm going to deal with the issue of desire. I'm going to address these situations and, and try to open up the biblical teaching and some practical biblical wisdom that can give us hope for this tough call of being sexually pure. Becoming a Christian is elementally simple. Putting your faith in Jesus Christ, that He alone is God, and He is required to forgive you of your sin. Apart from that, you're up the creek without God. That's it. I'm not saying it's 
easy. It's like that simple. Living out the Christian faith is a challenge. Wherever you are in your sex life, I encourage you, I God, ask Him to bless you, to heal you, to help you, give you thanks, ask Him to bless